Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church. I hope you had a great week this week. If you didn't, uh, today's message might be just for you, uh, and we're glad that you're here today. <laughs> and you're like, what's he going to talk about? Oh, we'll see in just a moment. We're going to be in John chapter 9. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, and John chapter 9, while you're turning there, I just want to invite everybody here to a thing that we're doing on Wednesday night over at our Strickland Road campus. For those of you who don't know, we have a, a campus that we're going to be moving to in the fall, uh, just a mile down the road. We're going to be totally debt-free, which you praise God for that, for sure, Yeah. And, uh, and God's provided and has used your generosity and we're going to be moving down there. Don't have a date yet, so for those of you who are listening for that, still don't have that yet. Uh, but we're going to go over there on Wednesday night. And so maybe in place of your small groups, uh, just go ahead, if you're a small group leader, say, hey, we're going to take the group over here at 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. We're going to be having a time of prayer. And uh, we're going to be praying over the whole campus. So our prayer team is going to be leading us through that time, praying over the different buildings, praying for God to work, you know, in the building where we'll have this kind of meeting, in the children's building, where the students are going to meet, and just praying for all the things that God might want to do in, the, in that place. But here's what, one of the things I'll tell you that is going to guide my prayer, and we're going to have a time where we can write on the foundation of the building, and if you want to write a prayer, you can. Maybe you want to write the name of your one that you're praying will come to Christ, you can. Verses, whatever you, you want to write. But as I'm praying about it, I pray that 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 place wouldn't just be a landing place for Southbridge Fellowship to be at. It would be a launch pad for us to send people out to IBM and Cisco and around the globe. Yeah, for sure. And that's God's, God's ascending God, and I believe he wants to send us all out. And so you're going to be sent out today, and as you walk out of here, you know, some churches, you know, back in the day, they used to have the signs like, you're now entering your mission field. You might be sitting next to your mission field today, just FYI. Well, we're going to send you out then, and God's got a world for you to reach for Jesus Christ. And uh, some of you need to know him personally. Some of you do know him, and you're like, oh, I got to focus in on myself. I got to grow. We're naturally our navel gazers, okay? And God sends us out on mission, and so we want it to be a launch pad at that campus. And so I hope that'll guide some of your prayers as we gather together there on Wednesday night at six o'clock. You're all invited. We'd love to have you over there, even if you're not in a small group. I didn't mean that just for small groups. If you're not in a small group, shame on you. Just kidding. Uh, we got freedom in Christ, but uh, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great way to connect with other people, and we want you to do it. But uh, even if you're not in a small group, we'd love to have you over there on Wednesday night at six o'clock. And uh, we're gonna be in John chapter nine. Let me pray for us right now, and uh, we'll jump into God's word. Father, thank you that we get to gather in your name. Um, as your children, we sing these songs that we're no longer slaves. There's some people here that are slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to darkness. Some people are, are blinded by their religion. They think they've been set free, but they're in legalism and religion. God, will you set people free today? Will you have the words of that song that we just sang be so true? We talk about split the sea so we can walk right through it. We get the image of what happened and when you had the Israelites walk across on dry ground, the Red Sea, and praise you for doing that. Will you have people walk out of their bondage into freedom today? And will you have people that are hurting, cast their burdens upon you? Will you have people that are at the, the high point of the, what their spiritual journey has been ever? Take them to the next level today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we come to our passage today, I've titled today's message, Dangerously Unaware. And I have become aware in my own life of how unaware I can be. And I was telling Pastor Brad, our children's pastor, this week, we've been talking together. We've both been researching mattresses, about a mattress that I had purchased and, and how all that went. What ended up, so our mattress that we sleep on right now, I, I could say it's a custom-made mattress because it's got an indentation specifically for me, 
Uh, the problem is if I want to lay in any other direction, any other way, that I've got, I always end up back into that spot because we've had it since before we planted the church here. And so we've been sleeping on the same mattress, and they say you're supposed to do it every eight years. I think that's a mattress scam, but whatever. Uh, I started researching, reading Casper, you know, write-ups and the purple mattress. They show that egg commercial if you've seen that. So I'm watching the YouTube videos on that, reading Amazon write-ups. Should it be a foam mattress, springs and foam, traditional, you know, pillow-top mattress? I'm reading all this stuff, and then one day I'm walking through Walmart, and I look at this, they've got this mattress in a box, like the foam mattresses come. It's 25% of the price of like, you know, Casper or any of those other purple mattresses, any of that stuff. And I think, how bad could it be? So I grab this mattress, I put it in our cart, I buy it, put it in the back seat of my Camry, and in the, in the, you know, it's in a box. It's a king-size mattress, but it's in a box. I put it in my Camry, I drive it home, I show it to my wife. We'll give it a shot. So I open it up, and like 30 minutes later, what was in a box is now the size of a king-size mattress. We let it, you know, deodorize or whatever for a night, and the next night we sleep on it. I wake up. I'm sweating when I wake up. Like, I'm so hot. I wake up sweating. I look over at my wife. She's talking like she's an Israelite. She's just grumbling and complaining about everything that happened that night. It's like, how sore is she? I'm never sleeping on that thing again. And then she goes into the bathroom to start getting ready, and I'm just looking at it like, I drive a Toyota Camry. And this thing is now the size of a king-size mattress. How am I going to get this back to the store? But then I think, well, they've got a you know, manufacturer's warranty. So I'll just call the maker, Zenus, the makers of this mattress. So I call them up, and the guy tells me everything I want to hear. Never buy into that, just FYI. He says, yeah, it's no problem. We have a machine that gets them in the box. You'll never be able to get it back in the box. Don't even try that. We know you can't get it back to the store. He says, just give it to somebody. Give it away to a charity. Give it to a friend. We'll put all your money back on your credit card. So I start calling up friends. Hey, you want this mattress? I've only slept on it once. You can have it. It's a king size. I didn't oversell it because I hated it, but I was trying to give it away for free. So I kept giving the free pitch. Nobody wanted the mattress. So I take it. I put it out in my garage. Seven days later, I check my credit card. Still haven't gotten a refund. And I will save you the, 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 the strain for the sake of our time today, all the conversations back and forth with them, the emails we exchanged. But if you've ever been in a nightmare experience with customer service, it was that. Plus, mine was worse, okay? Uphill both ways on the way to school, grandpa's story. It was terrible. I finally end up on the phone with them on a Friday morning. I call them up. We get on the phone. They say, here's the deal, Mr. Lear. You have to take it back to Walmart. I drive a Camry. Like, I just keep saying, like, it's not going to happen. Can you imagine, like, strapped to the top of the car on the way there? And the lady says, well, maybe you can use a zip tie or something. I'm like, zip ties are, like, that big. It's a king-size mattress. And so I get off the phone with her. I'm totally frustrated. And I think, how am I going to do this? All right, my wife drives a minivan. And so I scheme, I mean plan, so that when she comes back from school, dropping the kids off at school, I'll still be there. And I'll take the mattress, I'll fold it in half because it is foam, tie it up with a rope, we'll jam it into her car. But then I also was unaware that morning that it was garbage day. I forgot to put the garbage out. Another thing you need to know about me is I have this tendency in my personality to try and jam too many things into too small of a space time-wise. I'm always trying to do more stuff. And so I thought, well, we can get the king-size mattress and the garbage cans in her van if I just take the seats out. So I take the seats out, jam these seats. Oh, and then I forgot that that week we had done yard work. And the kids had left the garbage cans open, and it had rained. Do you know what garbage juice is like? Yeah, we had some garbage juice. And so I'm jamming the garbage can in there, putting the mattress in there. We head over to Walmart, and I hadn't even thought about what it's going to look like putting this mattress on a cart heading in there. Now, some of you know, you've seen on social media, there's actually websites that make fun of what people do at Walmart. I looked at my wife when we were pulling in the parking lot. It started to dawn on me. I goes, we are those people. Like, somebody's going to take our picture. We're going to end up on a website somewhere. And then she said, I just hope we don't see anybody from church. 
And I thought, well, instead of letting somebody else take pictures of us, you've got to be able to laugh at yourself. So I took some pictures. I'll show you here. Here's a selfie I snapped of the two of us, taking that in there. And then I thought I'd get one of just her that I might be able to use in the future. And so we had that. So we wheel this bad boy into customer service at Walmart. Guess the first person who walks up in line behind us goes to this church. And he's doing announcements today at the end of this service. And so you get to meet him. And my wife was totally humiliated. It was bad. We get out to the car after the whole rigmarole of returning. You know, they're looking at us like a mattress. You can't bring a mattress back. I got the receipt, and so we did it. And we get back in the car. You know what's worse than garbage juice? Garbage juice in a closed-in car for a while in 90-degree heat. Okay, that's what's worse than garbage juice. And so we get in the car, and we've got that smell to deal. I had no idea when I walked by that mattress. And I thought, 25% of the price? That seems like a good idea that I would be sitting in that garbage juice days later after fights and all the time I'd waste. I was totally unaware. Have you ever been unaware? I promise you that you are unaware of something in your life right now. Many of us, as you sit here, you're unaware of the stories of the people that are sitting around you, unaware of people that have kids that are running from the Lord, unaware that there's somebody sitting by you who just lost a job, unaware of people's marriages. Do you look at them and they come into church every week and they're about to break up? We're unaware of lots of stuff. You're unaware of things that are going to happen in your week next week. You don't know it yet. You've got your stuff on the calendar. I'm sorry, A-type, super control freaks. Their stuff's going to happen you didn't know about. And we're unaware. And there's some things in life that we can be unaware of. It can be dangerous for us. What I'm going to talk to you about today is more dangerous than if you were unaware and you were about to get hit by a semi-truck. We're talking about being dangerously unaware, and what we're really talking about is spiritual blindness. And I want you to ask God this question today, not yourself, because I could say to you, you know, what are you unaware of? Well, if you knew the answer to that question, you'd be aware. That's not the question. The question I want you to ask God today is this, am I unaware? Am I unaware? Because what's going to happen is we're going to walk into John chapter 9, we're only going to look at seven verses. At the end of this chapter, the best question of the whole chapter happens by the Pharisees. So I bet you've never been to church and somebody's like, the Pharisees are the good guys. Every time the Pharisees come on the scene, it's like minor chord, bad guy. Darth Vader just walked in, you know, it's bad news. The Pharisees at the end of this passage go, are we blind too? And Jesus tells them, yes. And some of us will come in here today. Maybe if you've grown up in church, maybe you know Jesus, the cross, and all the answers of all the stories, and you think you're not blind you might be in the most danger. If you've got your Bibles, John chapter 9 is where we're going to be. John chapter 9. Now, here's the, here's the thing that could happen with this story. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 7. It's easy to zoom into verses 1 through 7, see an incredible miracle. There's a guy who's born blind, and Jesus gives him sight. And we could see that, and we could talk about how Jesus is powerful. Jesus is powerful. Amen? And we could look at this, we see Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. Amen? All right. Amen with me. We'll get going. We'll get rolling. Amen? All right. But if we just did that, it'd be awesome. It'd be a great story. We'd learn true things about Jesus. We'd miss what John was trying to show us. See, here's the key with studying your Bible. The key with studying your Bible is context. Context is king. For those of you who take notes, you might want to write that down. Context is king. So some of you do real estate. Some of you are commercial realtors. Some of you are residential realtors. And there's three rules to real estate, right? Location, location, location. Come on, ameners. Be with me. Here's the key to studying your Bible. Context, context context. What's the con? The context is what comes right before and right after this. So what comes right before John chapter 9? John chapter 8. That's not, you don't have to be like a whiz to figure that all out. 
Here's what happens in John chapter 8. There's this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do is there would be this celebration. All the people would come, all the Jewish people would come into town. On the last night, they would have these big, there'd be these 75-foot pillars in the temple. And they would light them. Now remember, this is a time where there's no street lights. There's not lights in the middle of the night. They light these huge candles. They put clothes in there as the wick for the oils that would burn. It would light the city. People would be dancing. There'd be a party. It'd be a huge celebration. This is the next day in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, think of like the night after or the day after uh, New Year's Eve in Times Square or, or after the RBC Center. You know, you're down there at the RBC Center and the fair has just left the town. There's garbage everywhere. People have been partying. And then Jesus comes in after the party and he proclaims with that dramatic backdrop, I am. Now, it's one of the great I am statements of the Bible in John chapter 8 and verse 12. That's what John chapter 9 is all about is John chapter 8 and verse 12. He says, I am. What he's alluding to is what, what was said to Moses in the book of Exodus in chapter 3 when God's sending him to the Israelites and he's being sent. That's important and it'll come up at the end of this message today. He's being sent. And he says, well, what am I supposed to tell him your name is? And God says, I am. And he says, you tell them, I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, he's proclaiming himself to be God. And what he says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, we can put it up on the screen. I am the light of the world. All John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, is just an illustration. This man's whole life is just an illustration to point people to Jesus Christ. A man who's lived in darkness his entire life, God's going to bring light into his life to show that Jesus is the light of the world. Are you aware of who Jesus is? Not just do you know Bible stories. So when I ask you, am I, to ask God, am I unaware? That's what I'm asking you. And so what happens is Jesus makes this proclamation in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And then the rest of the chapter, he's arguing with the religious leaders. How can you testify about yourself? Who are you with the Father? How do you know the Father? You're the ch children of lies, he tells them. You don't understand. You don't know the truth. They think because they're church, they got to figure it out. And Jesus is going, y'all are in trouble. I'm the light of the world. Until you come to the realization that you have utter need for me, you're completely blind. At the end of the chapter, he says this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so if you don't think this is him declaring himself to be God, look what they do next. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And he went Jason Bourne on them. That's my interpretation. <laughs> but Jesus hid himself. Somehow he's standing right before them. They pick up stones, and then they can't find him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. John chapter 9, verse 1 is our passage. Verse 2, and his disciples, his disciples, so it's just not, it's not just Jesus walking by, it's Jesus and his disciples. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So he's obviously popular. How do the disciples even know he was born blind? You just see a blind guy, you don't know he was born blind. So he's born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. He's not saying they're sinless, he's just saying that's not the cause of this situation. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we, you can underline that, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He says it again, he's wrapping it together here. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So here you've got this guy, he's in... A lifelong struggle. It's been a tragedy for him. He's born blind his entire life. The disciples come by, they ask a question that many of us ask. Why? Why? Why, God? Why did this bad thing happen? God, if you're loving, then why do you... This doesn't seem very loving. 
If you're good, why evil? About four years ago, we did a sermon series as a church, and we asked everybody that was in attendance one day, and I think we might have done it for a couple weeks in a row, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask him? And people wrote their questions in, and we compiled those, and we were going to do a sermon series. We called it Trending Now, if you want to look it up on the website, Trending Now, and we were responding to the questions people asked. By far, like not even close, the number one question, why? But people didn't just say, why? Why is my question? Let me read you some, some of the questions that were given to us four years ago. Some of you, it might be your question today, but four years ago, people said this. Why did my husband die? Why did my dad suffer? Why do innocent people suffer? Why did my baby die? Why did my twins die? Why cancer? Why abuse? All these why questions are incredibly personal. And the disciples asked the question in this passage, but I bet the man had the same question. Why, why, am, why do I have to experience this? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why God? When we did that series four years ago, we looked at the book of Job, and the, we answered this question in, in two times. In the second passage, we looked at this passage, but in the first, first time, we looked at Job. And what happens in the book of Job, if you've never read it, it's in the Old Testament. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, it's a great passage of Scripture to go to, the whole book. And it points ultimately to God. But in Job chapter 1, there's this guy. He's got sheep, he's got cattle. And, and you can look at him and be like, he just owned a bunch of animals. No, those were businesses that he owned, whole industries. And he had a, a diverse portfolio. He had 10 kids. And one day he lost all of them, all 10 kids, all the businesses. And then what happens in the book of Job, verses 6 through 12, is that God pulls the curtain back and lets us see a discourse that's taking place between God and Satan. God gives us a glimpse at the spiritual world that we often don't get to see. And we see why it happened for Job. But here's the thing. If you put yourself in the place of Job, he never knew verses 6 through 12. He lived his whole life and never knew why. And what God's doing in his words, he's showing us this. Those of you who are going through difficulty, I hope you hear this. You might not know the why, but you can know there always is a why. That your pain is not random, your suffering is not just you know, some shrapnel that happens because you live in this world, that God always has a purpose in our pain. You might not ever know the purpose, maybe never know the purpose, but God has a purpose. You have a sovereign God who is controlled, it's ruling and overruling all the time. There always is a why. The disciples in this passage, they ask the why. Jesus doesn't answer the why. He doesn't tell them the cause. They want to know cause. How many of you, if you actually knew the why, it would change anything? The cause doesn't usually change anything, but the purpose does. And so what Jesus does here is he points them to the purpose instead. Say, why? Was it because of the sin? Was it because of his sin? Was it because of his parents' sin? But Jesus says it's not because of his sin or it's not because of his parents' sin. So the works of God might be displayed in him, verse 3. He points to the purpose, not the cause. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the purpose. And here's what our main overarching point is simply this, that God works through our suffering for his glory. God works through our suffering. A catchier way to say it, I've already said the phrase, there's a purpose in your pain. God always has a purpose in our pain. Oftentimes we're woefully unaware of what God's doing in our lives in general, much less in our suffering. And suffering can be physical suffering. It can be like this guy, maybe there's a disability. It could be a relational struggle that you're in. It can be emotional. It can be financial. There's all kinds of ways that pressure, stress, difficulties, tragedies come into our lives. And God's working in all of that. And so are you aware is the question. Now, there's a, this, is, this guy's life is just an illustration. 
Remember that? And you think about how many ways I could illustrate unawareness. On Mondays, what happens when I, so tomorrow, I'll go into my office and I'll start working on next Sunday's sermon and I'll send out an outline to a group of folks. Some of them write our small group. All of our small groups are based on the sermons on Sunday. And so they'll send out a small group study and then the worship team will get it and they kind of theme stuff around so we're all kind of working together towards what's going to happen on Sunday. And every time I send out the outline, some people will send back feedback. This week, when I sent them that I was going to preach a message titled Dangerously Unaware, I started getting ideas of how to illustrate lack of awareness. One lady sent me this picture. You can see here. This guy's paddle boarding. That is not his shadow that is there. That is a great white shark. And he's totally unaware that that shark's even there. In fact, his name's Roger Freeman. You can look up the article in the Boston Globe if you want to see all the details. He's out paddle boarding on his vacation. He comes back to the shore, and a surfer comes up to him and shows him this picture on his Instagram, and then Roger says, who's that guy? <laughs> it's him! And he didn't even realize it at first. Totally unaware. Could be eaten alive. Saw Jaws on TV last night. <laughs> and it didn't, I promise there was no music. He was unaware. Some of you have seen, I saw this week, the, the video that went viral with the Kiki, do you love me? Do you see the dance that's going on right now? Some of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the younger people are laughing. Some people are like, who is Kiki? What are you talking about? So there's this dance the trend that's going on. People are actually getting out of their cars while their cars are moving. And then on social media, putting a video, Kiki, do you love me? Like doing all this dance. There's this one guy. This one guy. You like that? All right, we can go. We can go. All right. Keep going. I might keep dancing. Be careful. There's this guy that's dancing outside of his car. He's skipping along, doing his thing, and he turns. Boom, there's a pole. <laughs> that's why it went viral. Unaware. Another guy emailed me. He said, you know, I was running the other day, and then there was a deadly snake on the path at Umstead Park. Now, that doesn't just mean everybody, avoid Umstead Park. It's like, keep your eyes, be aware. What Jesus is warning about in this passage of Scripture, through this man's life, is more dangerous than any of that. More dangerous than the shark. More dangerous than garbage juice in your car. More dangerous than a pole. Anything that could happen in this life. Because it could impact your eternity. And so try and imagine being this guy in this passage of Scripture. Enter into this story. This man, he's been born blind. How we know this? He must have been popular. How do you know he's born blind? But it, God tells us that here in this passage, he's born blind. What must that have been like? I don't want to minimize anybody here who's visually impaired or, or blind, unable to see, completely unable to see. But you've got to think about in this time what that was like. They had no Braille. Hadn't been invented. No seeing eye dogs. There was, that meant him being born blind... It was like a sentence of condemnation. He'll never be educated. I don't even know how to educate him. He'll never have a job. No prospect of marriage. So think about what it's like to be born. Not just that he can never, never seen a sunset, never seen the light of day, never seen a color. You know, sometimes you see these, these videos that come out on YouTube where somebody was colorblind and then they buy these glasses and then they can see green and they can see red and they start crying and their family starts crying. And if you have a heart and you're watching YouTube, you start crying. Not only this guy's never seen a color, he's never seen his mom's face. It's a mom who nurses him, cares for him. The one who leans in and says, God loves you. After he's healed, if, all, if he never heard her voice, never smelled her, only saw her, he wouldn't even know it was his mom. If someone describes to him, oh, these trees are so green, he doesn't even have a paradigm. What is green? What are you talking about green? He can't, he can't even fathom green. And he grew up that way. You remember what elementary school was like? You remember middle school? Before they had all the, the bullying talk? There's no, bully, there's no political correctness here. There's no bullying talks here. Kids can be mean. 
Imagine what this guy went through. How he's not so jaded and angry that he never even wants to see another human, I have no idea. Be around another human, sorry. But he's out here begging. And do you see what the passage says? As he passed by, he saw him. Jesus saw him. Now, it's interesting, and you go back to verse 1. That's verse 1, I just read that. Jesus isn't walking by himself. We see in verse 2, he's got 12 disciples with him. Why doesn't it say they saw him? The disciples weren't blind to the fact that there was a blind man there. They started talking about him in a moment. But they didn't see him. There's a reason why verse 1 says he saw the man. Jesus sees our pain. Do you know the first title that's given to God in the Bible by another, by a person is the God who sees? And so some of you here, you're, you are struggling. You are in pain. God sees you. Don't miss that in this story. He sees your pain. Some of you struggling with things that you think no one, some of you may be a disability and people can see it and they know you're in a wheelchair or they know you can't see or they know that you, you've got some handicap or they know that you've been going through chemotherapy. They know that but you think to yourself, they don't understand. You might be right. But can I tell you something? Jesus sees you. Some of you ladies, maybe you didn't become part of the Me Too campaign, but you could have. And there's something that happened way back in your past. He sees you. Statistically, many of you here have had abortions. Maybe no one knows. Maybe your spouse doesn't even know. Jesus sees you. You're not alone. Some of your marriages are struggling. He sees you. Some of you are in sin and you think it's your secret and no one else knows. He knows. And I don't say that to even shame you or so you can get caught in it. He's there with you going, come on, come with me. He sees you. But there should be a rebuke to us too when you look at the disciples because we are his disciples, right? And they didn't see. They saw, but they didn't see. We've got to ask ourselves the question, do you see the people around you? Do you see the needs in our city? Do you see what's going on with the people that walk through our doors? Not someday when we move to the Strickland campus, the people you're sitting by today. Amen. Do you see them? See, sometimes I'll meet people, and I'll just tell you what I'll say. I'll meet people in our city. We'll build a relationship. They don't go to church anywhere. And I'll say, you should come to our church. And say, I can't go to church. People will judge me. <laughs> do you know what I tell those people? And, and I think it's true, I might be wrong, but I, I tell them, hey, nobody's thinking about you when you come into church, just so you know. Say, everybody's so focused on themselves. Nobody has to be taught to navel gaze, just FYI. We're all thinking about ourselves, thinking about our problems, thinking about, does everybody judging me? What's going on in my... And because everybody's thinking that, nobody, you're not thinking about everybody else. So I say, you can come to church, nobody's thinking about you, just come to church. But isn't that really sad? Because shouldn't we be seeing and going, I wonder what their story is. I wonder if they need a word of encouragement today. I wonder if somebody should pray with them. I wonder if they need to be rebuked. We don't, we don't usually think like that because we're thinking about ourselves. Here's the disciples. They didn't see. And so they use this guy as a theological case study. How sterile. What jerks. Said, Who sinned? Maybe they're trying to impress Jesus that they're up on the latest theological conversations. This man or his parents? Now think about that question. The guy's born blind, so they're saying, did he sin in the womb? There was a belief then, actually, and if, you, if a baby kicked a lot, then you knew they were sinning in the womb. Has anybody got any soccer players here? Any pregnant women? Amen? Amen? <laughs> they're not soccer players. They're little sinners, okay? Got a little sinner in that belly, okay? And the question was, is it, did a child sin in the womb, or was, it the, or was it the parent, like some sin that the parents did, and there really was a belief then. The, the, the saying was this, there's no death without sin, 
and there's no suffering without iniquity. And the problem, and there's a general truth to that, because you know what? The reason why they're suffering, you want the real answer, the simple answer, but it's so simple that people think you just gloss over? The reason why they're suffering in the world is because there's sin in the world. That is true. If you read the beginning of the Bible, there was no sin. Guess what? There was no suffering either. Read the end of the Bible. There's no sin, and there's no suffering. There is sin in the world because, or there is suffering in the world because there's sin in the world. That is true. Here's what you can't say. You can't say there's specific suffering because of specific sin. And that's where the Pharisees got it wrong. Because if, unless the Bible, unless God directly tells you, it's because, now that does happen. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's why we give a warning when we do communion. The reason why some people had died in that church, because the way they were taking communion. But then you read Job's story, and he doesn't have suffering because of his sin. He's got suffering because he's righteous. And so the reality is, you and I, we don't know. So we shouldn't talk like we do know. We don't know. And that's the problem the Pharisees were doing. And one of the beliefs they had was that actually the thoughts of a mom while she's pregnant could cause moral problems for the baby. Think about that. Think about how much pressure moms are under already when they're pregnant. Okay, just FYI, I've never been pregnant. Okay, just to be clear about that. If anybody wasn't aware, write that in your notes. The pastor's never been pregnant. Okay, never been pregnant. But my wife's had four children. I've been around it. I see there are a ton of expectations on every pregnant woman in our day and this time. If you go grocery shopping and you're pregnant, I dare you to buy some non-organic food. Somebody will give you a judgmental look. And you just say, it's for my heathen husband. Don't worry about it. I'm good. You know, you, you, I dare you to walk into Starbucks without declaring, it's decaf. It's decaf, everybody. You will get the glares. Everybody's got expectations for you how you should live as a pregnant woman. Can you imagine if your religious leaders... The people who talk about eternal life, there's nothing bigger in life, said to you, if you have a sinful thought while you're pregnant, it'll impact that baby. <laughs> now, like I said, never been pregnant myself. My wife is a saint. I'm sure maybe she's never done this, but she's been pregnant four times. I'm pretty confident sinful thoughts she's had are actually my fault while she's pregnant. Okay? <laughs> I was thinking about this week. I remember one time when we, when we were coming with our first baby, she had a C-section, she had to go back to the hospital because of complications of the C-section, have another surgery, and, and then we're, we're home. You know, it's been a mess, and everybody's tired out. We're sleeping in a temporary housing. To have a foam mattress from Walmart would have been like a dream come true. We had an air mattress we were sleeping on, and my wife went to get the baby. She's going to feed the baby. She's hopping back into bed, and I rolled over, and I said, can you please quit bouncing? I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> and here's the miracle of the story. I woke up. Like, she didn't kill me in that moment. She didn't even punch me in the face. Like, I would have at least, bang, you know, if I were. I don't know she can do that between her and the Lord, but I'm going to guess she probably had some sinful thoughts about me in that moment. Can you imagine the social pressure if your religious leaders were telling you, and that's why your child has a problem in their life? Because that's the type of thing that was being taught. And Jesus doesn't even go down that line of thinking. It's like, no, 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 we're not even going to do that. We're not going to go to that cause. Cause doesn't change anything anyway. I know the cause. I can tell you the cause. Let's instead talk about the purpose. There is a purpose in your pain. And God works through the suffering. And what we're going to do here as we walk through the rest of this passage, I'm going to give you three application points. of some. Of, there's thousands of purposes in our pain. Billions of things God could be doing that aren't even, this man's whole life is an, for years he's been like this, to be an illustration. So let me say this to you too. And I want to say this with sensitivity, not just to yell at you. Sensitivity here, knowing that some of you are going through incredible pain and suffering, but your life isn't even about you. It's about Jesus Christ. 
even if you don't know him, he will receive glory through your life. He is sovereignly in control. And he will use your suffering. It didn't just happen by accident. It's not like he went, oh man, that guy's born blind. I better do something with that. God's got a plan since before the beginning of the world. And he made you exactly the way he made you for a reason. Exactly how tall you are. Exactly the gifts you have. Exactly the time in history that you live. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 we always quote. We say, by grace through faith. As Protestants, we love that. It's not of works. as anyone should boast. You know what verse 10 says? But you've got works to do. Your God's workmanship, his poiema, a work of art, woven together, all the pieces, all the parts, exact timing, to do works that he prepared for you from the beginning of time. God's not responding to what's going on in your life. It's part of his plan. He's got a purpose in it. One of the purposes is this, that he uses our suffering to teach us submission. He uses our suffering to teach us to submit to him. Did you notice with this man in the story that Jesus puts the mud on his eyes and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, and he goes... Why? He wasn't told he'd be healed if he went. Did you notice that? It doesn't say go to the pool of Siloam and you'll be able to see. Go to the pool of Siloam. I am the Messiah. It's go. And he went. You see him surrender. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, C.S. Lewis says this, pain insists upon being attended to. <laughs> if you've ever had a sliver, even the slightest pain, you know what, what he's talking about. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God is so good, he can even use evil to get our attention. And if you don't think that's true, look at the greatest evil that ever took place in all of human history when man killed God on the cross, when Jesus Christ, that's the greatest sin that ever took place. That Jesus is nailed to the cross and God uses it for your greatest good because it was at that point that we're pointed to his suffering, the suffering servant, the man of sorrow that goes to the cross and he bears our burdens. He bears our sin. The sins of the world are heaped upon him. And I could talk to you about the thorn crowns and the flogging and the beating and the tearing out his beard and experiencing torture that would send most men into insanity. But that's nothing compared to having the sins of the world on him and the wrath of God poured out on him, and then he and the Father are one, but he's forsaken by the Father for your sins. And so then, is it any wonder that he would use our suffering to then point us to the man of sorrows? To teach us to submit to him? You see, he, taught, he even taught Jesus obedience through suffering. What are you talking about? This guy's a heretic. Hebrews chapter 5 says this. Hebrews chapter 5, if you didn't read the verse, you might not even think it's in the Bible. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that Jesus had sin, and because of his suffering, he sinned less. Because in the book of Hebrews, at least three times, it's directly stated that Jesus never sinned. And so what does it mean that he learned obedience? Well, there's two kinds of obedience. There's obedience like you think you'd be obedient in a circumstance, and then you actually go through the circumstance, and you've got tested obedience. And that's what Jesus has. It's a te- he, he, he's going to be obedient. He's God. Of course he's going to be obedient. But then when he goes to the cross, then he le- through the suffering, he learns obedience. Now let me ask you this. If your Lord and your King learned obedience that way, do you think you're exempt? See, God teaches us submission through our suffering. That's the first thing we see. second thing we see is this, is, is that, that God uses our suffering to be his platform. He uses our pain as his platform for his glory. And you see it in this man. It's exactly what he says in verse 3. 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents. It wasn't saying that they were sinless. He's saying that wasn't the cause, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm going to use his pain as a catalyst to put my glory on display in his life. Let me think about the book of Job. I talked to you about Job already and what happened with his life. If I asked, you know, how many Christians have read Job and been comforted by Job throughout the years, millions have gone to Job. Why do you read the book of... Nobody reads the book of Job for how to get rich quick. Maybe somebody's written a book on that at some point. There's always crazy stuff out there. But, but that's not why you go... You don't go to Job because you're like, that guy had a lot of cattle. That guy had a lot of sheep. Who cares? How to pray for your kids. Like, that's not why you read Job. You read Job because the man suffered greatly. And then you receive comfort from his suffering. And so God uses the suffering in this man's life as a platform for God's glory. He does the same thing with you and with me. Again, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that he suffered so bad, he wanted to die. This man knew the Bible. He knew God. And you can debate, was it suicide? Was it just he wanted God to take him? We don't know. But if anybody ever tells you God will never give you more than you can handle, that's not true. God gives you more than you can handle all the time. He'll never give you more than he can handle but he'll give you more than you can handle. Do you know what Paul says in that chapter? Because things that are repeated in Scripture are being emphasized. He says, the God of comfort who comforted us in our need of comfort. And he keeps talking about the word comfort as that God met him in his suffering, comforted him, so then he could go comfort others. His suffering became a platform for him to minister in the lives of other people. And so some of you have been through cancer, and some of you have lost babies, and some of you have lost a spouse, and some of you have been through difficulty, and it's easy to be like, woe is me, and think about all your problems. Maybe God wants to use that to comfort you in that time, but it's not even just, even his meeting you in the moment isn't about you. He wants to bring glory to himself as he uses you in the life of somebody else. Which takes us to our next one, the one I think that John emphasizes the most, that God uses our suffering to fuel our sending. God uses our suffering to fuel our sending. And so you go back here in this passage of Scripture and you see what happens and see how Jesus emphasizes that we are the ones that are sent. Notice what happens here. Verse 3, we've read several times. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. There's a purpose in the pain. God's going to be glorified through this. Verse 4, we, can underline that, must work the works of him who sent me. Grammatically, that makes sense. What are you talking about? should say, I must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. So he's the sent one. That's what we get from that verse. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. What does that mean? As Christians, we sing songs about this. Like Jesus is the light of the world. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We talk about our vision as a church. We're going to be the light, salt and light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. What is that even talking about? And I bet we get 100 answers if I asked 100 people. But we know in the Bible, we see there's these synonyms. Light and life are used synonymously. Light and righteousness are used synonymously. Darkness and death are used synonymously. Darkness and sin are used synonymously. So light and darkness are oftentimes talked about in the Bible. It's just assumed you know what's being talked about there. But what does light do? Light reveals. It shows something. The other day I was walking into my bedroom and my second daughter, Ava, was laying on our bed. She was reading a book and she said to me, what does God look like? Kids can ask the most profound questions, can't they? And I said, well, God is spirit, so no one has seen him. I'm thinking, all right, we're done with that. Don't ask any more questions because this could get real hard here in a moment. Then she asked a question. At the moment, it didn't seem like they even correlated with one another, but then I saw how they made sense. And she said, well, if you've never seen him, then how can he speak to you? 
Because you hear the people, Christians are always saying, God spoke to me, God led me, God told me. And so what I did then, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun. And I got down next to the bed underneath a little bit so she couldn't see me. And I started to talk to her. And I said, now, can you see me, Ava? She's like, no. I said, can you hear me? And I'm like, point proved. There we go. We're good. But she didn't stop asking questions. Then she said, well, why does the Bible say that God has arms and he has a hand and he has legs? Like, why does it talk like that? I'm like, well, honey, you know, it's trying to, the Bible's trying to speak to us in language so that we can try to understand God better. So it's using language that we can understand. And then it clicked for me. John chapter 1 in this book. No one has ever seen God. It says that in John chapter 1, but you know what it says? The way that you see God is by looking at Jesus Christ. What Jesus is talking about, what you see happen, in John chapter 1 it says this. I'll just read you the verses so that you have those. So you know I'm not just making that up. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 18, if you jump down a couple of verses, says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the, right, at the Father's right side. That's Jesus. He has made Him known. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Then remember, I told you this whole thing is about John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me does not walk in darkness, no longer walking in sin, no longer walking in death. You have life. I am the light of the world, by the way. The light for all the world, for all the Buddhists in the world, for all the Muslims in the world, for all the agnostics, all the atheists, all the Christians. There's only one light. It's Jesus. And what does he do? Well, you read John chapter 8, and it can seem like the rest of it's a distraction. You're arguing about the Father and whether he came from the Father and that they don't know the Father and that their Father is Satan because they're deceived. And then Jesus keeps talking about he is the Father. No one knows the Father like the Son knows the Father. And he reveals the Father. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Is the Son reveals the Father. The light reveals, illuminates who the Father is. If you've seen me, Philip, then you've seen the Father. said. But then we're supposed to be the light of the world, the city on a hill. And what does that mean? We point the light to Jesus. We reveal the revealer. Jesus reveals the Father. We reveal Jesus. So you are, wherever you go, and that's the whole point here then is sent. You're sent. You're sent as a light. And wherever you go, you point people to Jesus. Jesus points people to the Father. It's the only way to God is through Jesus. And you point people to him. So like the man in the story will end up saying, I was blind and now I see. You got to come meet the guy. The guy who did this. I was this way, and now I'm this way. I was hopeless. I was proud. I was arrogant. I was sinful. I was lustful. Whatever your story is, and Jesus set me free. You sang a song earlier. He split the sea so we could walk right through it. Was that true? Are you free? I was in bondage. Now I'm free. Come meet the guy who can set you free because you're trapped by the praise of people. You're trapped by this pursuit of materialism. You're trapped by your sin, and you don't even know it. I can see, really, because that's the question at the end. And you see what Jesus says here. Notice he said, I told you in verse 4, to underline that first word, he doesn't say, I must do the works of him who sent me. He says, we must do the works. God's got work for you to do. It's revealing the Father. And, and when he talks about his time here, well, while it's day, most theologians believe he's talking about his earthly ministry because Jesus is still working. But his earthly ministry is here. How long is today for you? You only got so much time to do the work that God's given you to do. And so here you see, he says, I was sent, the one who sent me, he sent me. And then look at what he says to this guy. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to him, go. So he sends him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John feels compelled to write down and let us know that the word Siloam in Hebrew means sent. You think he's trying to tell us something here? 
The sent one, Jesus Christ, he's called the sent one in John's gospel about 20 times. I think it's 19 times in the gospel of John. He's called the sent one. Do you know what he says at the end of the gospel of John? It's his version of the Great Commission. John chapter 20, verse 21, just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. We're all sent ones. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're, you're sent out on mission for him to, reach, to reveal. As you live a righteous life, you bring light into darkness. As you point people to men, to the men, women, boys and girls, to the, light, the life you have in Jesus Christ, you're bringing light into the world. As you go, sent, talk about sent. The sent one in this passage sends this man to a place called sent. You think John's talking about sending? He says, the one who sent me, got to do the work, so the one who sent me, and then he goes to the man, go, sends him to the place, Siloam, which means sent. He's sending. What is he using in this man's life to send him? His suffering. God uses suffering to fuel our sending. And you know what you see in this man's life? As he goes, he grows. See, there's this, there's this problem that, that many times Christians have where they, they think discipleship and evangelism are like separate things. I think that's satanic, that the, that the church even starts believing that. How do you separate the mission of God from the message of God? And what Christians start thinking is, in order for me to be able to be on mission for God, I've got to get in my little holy huddle and focus in on the message of God, and you isolate yourself from the very people you're supposed to be reaching. Where do you see that in the Bible? Because what you see in the Bible is, as soon as somebody trusts Christ, they're out telling people. And so as this guy's going, he's growing, and what happened in his life, his eyes being opened, remember, that'd be nothing if God didn't do the work he does in this man's heart and heals his soul. What was the point of his healing here? Some of you are going to come at 4 o'clock today, we're going to have a prayer service, pray for healing over different people, pray for difficulties that are going on in people's lives, and say God does something in that. What's the point? So my, my wife and I went to Madagascar at the beginning of July. I shared this with some of you a couple of weeks ago. And while we were in Madagascar, my wife's a nurse, and so she saw lots of medical issues. Lots of people came to her with different things. There was this one guy who came to her, and he, had, he was a witch doctor, and he had hurt his finger. He burned it on a rope while he was there. And for us, we'd put a little, you know, antiseptic on or whatever. We'd, kill, we'd clean it up. It'd be fine. They didn't have all that. They don't do the basic medical stuff. This guy's finger was three times the size of his other fingers. It's this huge finger. It had this big cut on it. Flies were all over it. It stunk. It was, it was black with dead flesh on it. My wife starts talking to him, says, you've been to a doctor. They have doctors in the city. She says, yeah, the doctor told me I should cut my finger off. And uh, my wife looked at him and said, he's probably, you probably should. You need to do that. I was going to get septic. And she's telling him all these problems. And looks over at me and she tells me what's going on. Like with this guy, it's all being interpreted there. And she says, this guy probably needs to have his finger cut off. And I look at her and I go, should we cut his finger off? She looks at me like, you are an idiot <laughs> at that moment. Gives me the stank eye. I'm like, well, I have a doctor. I am a doctor. Like, we can cut his finger off. I don't know what we do the moment his finger is off, but we can cut it off. We didn't cut his finger off. Amen. And uh, we laid hands on him. We prayed for him. We left. The next week, our missionary went back, Grant Waller. And when he got there, the guy came up to him in the village, showed him his finger. His finger had been healed. He said, well, yeah, I can give the Lord a hand for that. Praise the Lord. He still heals people. He said, while we were praying for him, he felt popping in his finger. And he went back to his hut, and his finger started to get better. It still had a, a cut, and it still had the scar from the cut on it, but the, the dead flesh was all gone, the infection was all gone, his finger had been healed, and he was a witch doctor, and when he realized, this God's real, he took his idols and he burned them all and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Amen? For sure. 
let me ask you this question. If his finger had just been healed, but he still went, was going to hell, who cares about his finger? Can I, can I tell you a sobering truth? This guy couldn't see for however many years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, we don't know. And he's able to see. Awesome! But he's still going to die. The guy we talked about last week in John chapter 5 can't walk. He gets able to walk. Awesome! He's still going to die. Next week, we're going to look at John chapter 11, Lord willing. Lazarus is dead in the tomb for four days, gets raised from the dead. That guy dies again. Do you know how I know? He wasn't on Dateline last night. Like, if he was still alive, people would be talking about it. At least Fox News would be talking about it. Like, somebody would be talking about it, right? You would know if that guy, he died again. So if this guy's finger does it, you know, gets healed and he's still going to hell, who cares? See, God does the physical healing so he can do a spiritual work through your life. So he uses the suffering to send you. So say you come tonight, you got cancer, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, I'm not predicting it'll happen, or if you come, it will happen, but if, it, if you come and you got cancer, you get healed from your cancer, that's awesome, great story, you're still going to die. What does God want to do in the meantime? Maybe he wants to take you and go, you know, the God who healed me of my cancer healed me of another incurable disease. It's called sin. And there's only one cure. It's the blood of Christ at the cross. Let me point you to him. And as you go, then God starts to refine you and show you who he is, and he meets you there. That's why there's a promise with the Great Commission. It's that God's present everywhere. Why does he say, lo, I'll be with you? It's his manifest presence that he meets you in as you're living on mission. And so what you see in this passage of Scripture, we don't have time to read every verse. I challenge you to do it. Test what I'm saying. Go back and see if this is what the Bible says. What happens is this guy goes first to his neighbors, and he tells what he knows about Jesus. And you know what he knows? Verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And so he knows Jesus is a man. And then he stands before the Pharisees. So he's sharing the gospel with his enemies. And so they asked him about who he is. He says, so they said again to the blind man, verse 17, verse 17, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So as he's going, he's growing. He's, going, he's a man. Now he's a prophet. You flip over and verse 33, his parents get called before him. And maybe that's the first time he gets to see his parents ever with his eyes. And they say, ask him. We don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. You ask him. Verse 33 then says this. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, the man says. So he goes from being a man to being a prophet to being from God. But then he has the most amazing encounter of his entire life. Verse 35 through 38, which sends up a sermon that Jesus preaches. Verse 39, 40, and 41. Just a three-verse sermon. Amen. Jesus could do it. I can't. Jesus has heard that they cast him out of the the synagogue, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy answers, verse 36, And who is he, sir? Sir, like, respectful, that I may believe in him. So here's a man whose whole life has been darkness. And right before his face is the light of the world. And he said, Jesus said, You have seen him. It's he who is speaking to you. In verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So he goes from being a man to being a prophet, to being from God, to being Lord that's worthy of worship. As he's going, he's growing. And God used his suffering to send him. So then he could preach this message at the very end. And here's Jesus' message. For judgment I came into the world. God so loved the world, he came to the world to give life, right? But the, 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 there's always a negative to a positive. Just the same as the Ten Commandments, there's a positive spin to those. There's a ne- if he's going to love, he's also got to judge. 
Well, this doesn't mean anything. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Whoa, I'm twisted up. What does that mean? And the Pharisees asked. Some of the Pharisees who have physical sight near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Great question. Might be the best thing you say in the whole Bible, Pharisees. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's like when Jesus confronts them and says, you don't need a doctor. Only sick people need a doctor. You're righteous. We know the Bible says there is not one righteous. No, not one. We all have a need for Jesus Christ. Are you aware of your need? That's really what I'm asking you. Are you aware of what you might be unaware of? And there's no way you can be. So you have a need. And it's Jesus. Let's pray.